Chapter 51 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gershet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Revival of the Viking Spirit, Magnus Barefoot. When Olaf Kyrre died, his son Magnus was proclaimed king in Viken, while the people of Oplanen were led, as it appears, by Thore of Stieg, who chose his nephew Hawken. The arrangement of joint kingship, first introduced in the time of Magnus the Good and Harald Hardrada, was now repeated. The kingdom does not seem to have been divided, though some sources seem to indicate it. According to the Morkenskina, the two kings ruled together for two years, but the older sources, Theodricus Monicus and Augrip, state that the joint kingship lasted only one winter. Hawken was then killed by a fall from his horse. Thore of Steig, the old opponent of Olaf Kyrre, did not even now acknowledge King Magnus, though after the death of Hawken, the young king was the only legitimate heir to the throne. Thore formed an opposition party in support of the pretender Sven, and started a revolt. But this was easily put down, and the two leaders, Thore of Steig and Egil Oskelson, were captured and executed. The king found another opponent in Svankesteinersson, who was a lendermand, a sort of markgraf in the border districts on the Goethe River. In these far-off districts his will was law, and he protected the people against the robbers and outlaws who infested the region along the border. He had not taken part in the revolt, but he did not submit to the king, and managed all affairs according to his own mind. He was summoned to the border thing, where the Stalora, Sigurd Ulstring represented the king. After the thing was assembled, they saw a body of warriors approaching, dressed in steel so bright that they looked like a moving block of ice. This was Sveinke, who came to the thing with five hundred armed followers. He ridiculed the Stalera, and after some altercations Sigurd had to flee. The king marched against the arrogant Lendermand, but hostilities were averted through the intercession of friends. Svanke was banished for a short period, but he was soon recalled and became one of the king's best friends. Magnus Barefoot was a warrior like his grandfather Harald Hardrada. In his reign the air was again filled with the sounds of war trumpets and the din of arms. The Viking spirit flared up anew from the smoldering embers, fanned into life by the martial spirit of the young king, who was reported to have said that a king ought to court honor rather than a long life. King Magnus was brave to foolhardiness, and energetic to rashness, a sort of demigod, who was loved by his followers even for his faults. But it would be manifestly unjust to regard him as a mere Viking chieftain, or as a romantic dreamer who spent the ten years of his reign in the pursuit of the phantom of military glory. It is evident that he followed a clearly conceived plan, and that he was never led by vain ambition to waste his means in rash and impossible adventures. He did not aspire to the throne of England, like his grandfather had done, nor did he attempt to conquer Ireland, as some old writers would have us believe. The chief, if not the only purpose of his expedition to the British Isles, seems to have been to reduce the Norse Island possessions to full submission to the home government. But the ever-recurring war expeditions increased the burdens of taxation, removed great numbers of the ablest men from productive employments, and retarded the peaceful development inaugurated by Olaf Kyrre. The history of Magnus Barefoot's reign is a record of his military campaigns. Of the internal affairs of the country in his time, little is known. Of real progress, history has nothing to record. 
As soon as Magnus was securely seated on the throne, he provoked a war with Sweden by claiming the Swedish province of Dahl, or Dalsland, lying between Ranrike and Lake Venern. He crossed the Goethe River with an army, and harried the districts until they had to offer their submission. On Kolland Island, in Lake Venern, he built a fort and left a garrison of 360 men. But when he returned home for the winter, the Swedish king, Inge Stenkelsson, captured the fort and drove away the garrison. The following spring, Magnus renewed his campaign, and a battle was fought at Foxerna, on the Gotha River. According to Algrip, Magnus was victorious, but according to Theodricus Monicus, he lost the battle. The last version is probably correct, since a peace conference was called at Konghella in 1101, where the three kings, Magnus Barefoot of Norway, Inge Stenkelson of Sweden, and Eric Igod of Denmark were all present. According to the terms of the treaty here concluded, the kings should retain the territories which their predecessors had held, but Magnus should receive the hand of Margaret, King Inge's daughter, in marriage, and her dowry should be the districts in dispute. She was nicknamed Fredkula, the Peace Maiden. Snorra gives the following description of the three kings as they appeared together at Konghella. Inge was the largest and strongest and looked most dignified. Magnus seemed the most valiant and energetic, but Eric was the handsomest. The most noteworthy features of King Magnus's reign were his expeditions to the British Isles. Two earlier expeditions, which Magnus was thought to have made in 1092 and 1093 to 1094, have been described by the old scholar Torfaeus. Buchanan, a Scotch historian of the 16th century, who bases his account on Fordun's Scotchetronicon, also tells how King Magnus in 1094 aided Prince Donald Bain to gain the throne of Scotland. The account of the last-named expedition has been considered to be historic also by the great Norwegian historian P.A. Munch, but Gustav Storm has shown that Magnus made neither of these expeditions. The passage in the Statutronicon is shown to be an interpolation by a late writer, and the foundation for the statement referring to Magnus's operations in Scotland in 1094 disappears wholly when it is made clear that at this time he was still in Norway, busily engaged in securing his succession to the throne. Norse sagas mention only the two expeditions in 1098 to 1099 and 1102 to 1103, about which Welsh chronicles, Irish annals, and verses of contemporary skalds give the most reliable information. After the peace at Konghella, Magnus sailed to the British Isles with a fleet of 150 ships. He landed in the Orkneys, where he deposed the Jarls Paul and Erland and sent them to Norway, possibly because they had been neglectful of their duties as vassals. Soon afterward, he took King Gudrud Kroen of the Hebrides prisoner and forced him to submit. He then proceeded to the Isle of Man, which was regarded by the Norsemen as belonging to the Hebrides group, Sudriar. Civil strife between rival chieftains had here been in progress, and he found on the battlefield of Sandvad the corpses still lying unburied, says the chronicle. He took possession of the island and erected a number of houses and castles. According to Ordericus Vitalis, he brought over a large number of colonists from Norway, because the inhabitants had been greatly reduced in numbers by the incessant feuds. The real reason for the new colonization may have been that he could put little trust in the loyalty of the Manx, who were partly of Gaelic descent, 
and who had lived isolated in their island homes too long to feel any attachment for Norway. During the reign of William Rufus, 1087-1100, the Normans in England were engaged in subduing Wales. The king was unsuccessful in his campaigns against the Welsh mountaineers, but Norman barons and adventurers had gradually pushed their way into the country, where they seized one district after the other and erected castles. When the king of South Wales fell in the Battle of Brecknock in 1093, three Norman lordships came into being in South Wales. In northern Wales, the Normans had been less successful, but the conquest was pressed with energy. The Earl of Chester had pulled across the Menai Strait to Anglesey, where he built a castle at Abersheinioch. But the Welsh rallied in 1095 to 1096 and destroyed all the Norman castles on Welsh soil except that of Pembroke. King William marched against them and vowed that he would exterminate the entire male population, but he had to return home without having won a single victory. The Norman earls were more successful. In 1098, the earls of Shrewsbury and Chester marched through northern Wales, crossed over to Anglesey, and rebuilt the castle of Abercheniog. The Welsh turned to Magnus barefoot for aid. He accepted the invitation and quickly crossed over from the Isle of Man with his fleet. In attempting to prevent the Norsemen from landing, the Earl of Shrewsbury was mortally wounded, and the Normans, who had become thoroughly alarmed, evacuated Anglesey. Magnus returned to the Orkneys for the winter. King Logman of Man, whom he had taken captive, was made vassal king of Man in the Hebrides, and he seems to have ruled till 1101. When the king and his men returned to Norway, they wore Scotch national costumes. As these had never before been seen in Norway, they attracted much attention, who were ever fond of descriptive nicknames, called the king Magnus Barefoot. King Lagman of Man and the Hebrides disappears in 1101. Whether he died in that year, or departed on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, as stated in the Chronica Regum Maniae, cannot be definitely determined. The chronicle also states that Magnus sent another king, Ingemund, to Man, but he was slain, and Magnus went to the islands to restore order and submission. This gives a credible explanation of Magnus's second expedition, which he seems to have undertaken for the purpose of organizing the western possessions for his son Sigurd, who was made king of the islands in 1102. His plan seems to have been to make Sigurd ruler of this new island kingdom, while his older son Oystein was to inherit the throne of Norway. The Welsh Chronicle states that Magnus visited Anglesey, cut a great deal of timber, and brought it to Man, where he built three castles, which he garrisoned with his own men. From Man he sailed to Dublin in 1102. The Heimskringla states that he captured Dublin and Dublinshire, and spent the winter with King Miriartark, in Cunachter, possibly Connacht, but this is wholly erroneous. The Ulster Annals have the following entry for the year 1102. In this year King Magnus came to Man, and he made peace with the Irish for one year. The four masters give a more detailed account. An Irish army was assembled at Dublin to resist Magnus and the Norsemen, who came to ravage the country, but they made peace for one year, and Myrkertach gave King Magnus's son Sigurd his daughter in marriage, and many costly presents with her. This shows that Magnus's second expedition could not have been undertaken with a view to conquer Ireland, but that it has been his aim to attach the island possessions more closely to the Norwegian crown. In these efforts he had been very successful. 
He reestablished order in the islands, built and garrisoned forts for the maintenance of peace, brought in new colonists to settle and develop the districts which had been laid waste during the period of anarchy and misrule, and united the islands under a king who was to govern them subject to the authority of the king of Norway. These wisely conceived and ably directed efforts to establish an efficient government in these distant lands, which had hitherto been the spoils of reckless adventurers and the haunts of freebooters, might have had abiding results. A new era of peace and development might have dawned for them had not death suddenly cut short King Magnus's career. It appears that in the summer of 1103 he left the Isle of Man, bound on a homeward voyage. He landed on the northeast coast of Ireland, where he made a raid into the country with but a small force. After he had penetrated quite a distance inland, he was suddenly attacked by an Irish army. Trusting in his bravery, he refused to retreat, but his men were overpowered by superior numbers in the marshes where the battle was fought, and Magnus himself fell. He was at this time thirty years of age. The accounts of this raid into Ireland, as given by the different sources, are much at variance. The sagas describe it as a foraging expedition, and state that Magnus was waiting for cattle to be brought him often off Carnactum, when the Irish suddenly fell upon him. Ordericus Vitalis relates that Magnus landed on the coast of Ireland. The Irish were much afraid and did not dare to meet him in battle, but speaking fair words they prevailed on him to debark, and when he had marched two miles into the country he was ambushed and slain. The Chronica Regomaniae states that Magnus hastened ahead of his fleet with sixteen ships, that he imprudently landed in Ireland, where he was surrounded by the Irish, who slew the king and nearly all his men. He was buried at the St. Patrick's Church at Down, Downpatrick, the Chronicle adds. The essence of the whole matter seems to be contained in the statement of the Ulster Annals that Magnus was attacked and killed by the Ulstonians on a plundering expedition. When Sigurd heard of his father's death, he became disheartened and returned to Norway. King Werchertach had formed an alliance with King Henry I of England, as both seemed to have regarded Magnus as a dangerous neighbor, and Olaf Bitling, a son of the former King Gudrid Crowen, was placed on the throne of Man. Though Magnus's plans thus suddenly came to naught, his work had nonetheless produced permanent results. The Jarls of the Orkneys and the Kings of Man and the Hebrides became more closely attached to Norway than hitherto, and the system and organization introduced by King Magnus continued to exist in the islands for well nigh 150 years. The closer relations established with the lands in the west gave a great stimulus also to commercial intercourse between Norway and the British Isles, and new costumes and articles of luxury were introduced from Scotland and England. Magnus himself had formed a sort of partnership with an English merchant in Lincoln, who kept his treasury and supplied him with arms, ornaments, and other necessary affairs. After King Magnus's death, Henry I of England forced the merchant to turn over to him 20,000 pounds of silver. End of chapter 51